we uh, there's not a rule that you have to do, use the three subs. You don't find us competitive. Um, he's, he's the best left back in Canada, without a doubt. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Third Sub Podcast, number 54. I'm your co-host, Alexander Gongay-Ruzik, and I'm joined by Samuel Rowan. I mean, lots to talk about today. A Whitecaps win and then a, looking forward to a, another Whitecaps game in short short notice here as the compressed MLS 2020 schedule continues. But before we dive into any of that, Sam, how's it going this weekend? Uh, happy Thanksgiving. I mean, Usually we'd uh, record this maybe a, a little closer after the game, but uh, obviously it's a holiday. Took the took the time off, enjoyed the enjoyed the very beautiful Vancouver rain. But we're back, and uh, yeah, how was the the weekend? Yeah, um, it was pretty good. And you know, to all our listeners out there, uh, hope you had a happy and enjoyable Thanksgiving with uh, with family members. Hopefully, you know, done done in a COVID safe manner as we're all trying to do, and then. Yeah, some some crazy weather. Had some snow this morning up in Whistler, which is which is always fun in October. So uh, gross. Not sure exactly what to make of that, but it was it was an interesting way to start the work week, so to speak. And uh, man, interesting Whitecaps match. I mean, not a Picasso in terms of footballing quality. It was, I think, a poorly played match by both teams in a lot of respects. But at the same time. The Whitecaps taking advantage of RSL twice now and, you know, keeping themselves in this playoff hunt. I mean, it seems it seems silly to talk about because you you feel like the Whitecaps have been so poor and should be so far out of it. And yet they're not. They're right in the thick of things. I mean, you have Colorado just they've got four matches to make up and who knows whether they're even to, able to go ahead with the rest of the season. There's so many question marks. So all the Whitecaps can do is just keep playing, keep trying to build on these performances. And yeah, I mean, I don't know, throughout this podcast, you're probably going to get the sense that I'm not I'm not putting a ton of stock in this victory. I'm not ready to go ahead and say, this is it. The Whitecaps are, you know, destined for the playoffs now and they're they're on the, you know, they're on the right path. But I think there are some things you can look at from this 2-1 result and build on. But there's also some things that are concerning as well. I mean, if you're the Whitecaps, can you, you you tell RSL, can we play you every week? Yeah, like, please, let's just do a do a head-to-head series for the rest of the regular season because it feels like the Whitecaps and, and Lucas Cavallini specifically, like, Cav is a goal a game if he plays against RSL. So yeah, I'm sure he'd enjoy that. A game winner a game, too, one way. Exactly. I mean... Yeah, I think it was it was an interesting interesting game, and I now for the first time under Mark DeSantos, the Whitecaps did the double over a team in MLS. I mean, last year the closest they came was versus Colorado, who they beat and drew, and versus Dallas, who they beat and drew. So now they've taken six points off of an opponent for the first time in a season. They have a chance this weekend to do it again against LA Galaxy who they took three points off earlier this year. And obviously they play them three times, so they technically have another chance after if they fail to do so. But aside from all those statistics, I mean, yeah, it was it was, it was 
just the white caps it was weird to see them control play for a good chunk of the game i feel like we'd almost forgotten what that was like i mean obviously they controlled play against portland but they were down one nil and i mean they did go down one nil early and you kind of felt like you had to sound the alarm not early like but 38th minute earlier than they'd had in the previous two games you kind of felt like you had to sound the alarms again another glaring individual error and then they fought back and that that's good to see the fight back because the last thing you want to see when your team is in a four game losing streak, they're in a, they're in a home away from home. They're playing a team that's up three points ahead of them in the playoff race. The last thing you would want to see them do is fold and give up and call it a wash because let's be honest with the state of the season and how the opponents work and where they found themselves. If they lost, I feel like their playoff hopes were all but, all but done. They would have taken something like four or five wins in the last six games, which just is hard to see happening. But with how tight things are, a, a victory all of a sudden puts them right back in the mix. And it feels like they only need two or three wins in the last six games and they can be in a good position with how tight things are and considering they're playing direct opponents and, and all that. So it's definitely a big win, a big lifeline. It was good to see them fight back, show that there's still some spirit in this group. I mean, you talk about losing the locker room. I don't think, you know, I don't think you look at a performance like that. Maybe the the losing streak, you you, you felt some rumblings, but I, I feel like after a win like that, you can still see that people are committed to the cause and they're still, at least they're going to fight to the end, whatever that ends up being. I think what was quite impressive about this match was the way the team responded to what I would put in no other way than Ranko's individual error. Like, he just switched off, left a guy completely unmarked in the center of the box. I mean, that that one is very much on the young defender. But in other matches, we've seen the Whitecaps collapse after that or certainly look fragile and look unable to respond. And yet in this match, as much as it wasn't perfect, they responded really well to that poor moment. And I mean, even Mark DeSantos, he did the little halftime interview and he was saying that's a specific scenario we've talked about. And, you know, just during a sudden, he couldn't believe that they could let something like that happen after they talk about it so much. And yet, obviously, they went in and had a chat at halftime and went, okay, that's something that shouldn't have happened, but we can move on from this. We're still playing well in other areas of the pitch. We just clean that up and we should be good to go. And so I think the as much as you hear good talk about the mentality constantly and how guys within the team believe to actually see them recover from an individual error like that and respond relatively well is, is positive. Because that's been a problem throughout this season that the Whitecaps often, if they have a moment of weakness or a moment of error, it kind of crumples them and they're unable to respond. So to see that response against RSL, I think, bodes well for these last couple of matches they have and uh yeah maybe they can continue to find some of that magic and and sneak into the playoffs who knows i think it's it's a big win maybe not a big win in terms of dominance they weren't they're far from dominant it's not one you're gonna look back i think it's not like one like la galaxy where you go into the into a tough stadium no matter the circumstances with fans and you win it's maybe not the Chicago game where you have no one on your roster and you just, you pull it out of nowhere, you get the two nil result. It's not TFC where you're taking on a giant at home. Like the, I mean, look at just to a quick aside on TFC. They're, they're first in MLS. They, the pace they have considering it hit game 17, it's 
it w- if they continued their pace for in a theoretical second half of a season, they'd be the best ever supporter shield team. Just to give you an idea of how surprising it was to see the Whitecaps beat them at home, but it's not it's not a memorable victory like any of those three, for example. But it's or the ten men the ten men victories were a whole other story. But to see them persevere and, and, and get that victory it, it's going to be one they remember for maybe moments aside from their play just to see the fight and the spirit all those intangibles we always talk about all the cliches it's just it's good to see them because now it puts them in a good position I mean last time they beat RSL they took on LAFC and we know how that happens it wasn't pretty but now they're at home they didn't travel they're not gonna have to travel because, you know, that, that means with how things are, they stay, assuming how usually the training schedule goes, they took Sunday as a recovery day, they've trained fully Monday, and then they trained a little harder today, which is Tuesday, than they usually would, just because they know they don't have to travel tomorrow and they can recover a little better, and then they take on LAFC, whereas LAFC played Sunday, so then they, they, they would have to, would have had to recover on Monday, train Tuesday you can't train Tuesday because as hard as you would because it's before a game and then they travel on Wednesday to Portland so all of a sudden the Whitecaps are in a decent position here five of their last six games are at home technically one's away to Portland but they're all in Portland aside from a quick jaunt down to LA to face a struggling Galaxy team I think that's the one team you'd want to play away right now amongst the teams in their pod at least maybe aside from RSL so I think this is, it was just a good matchup for those, uh, good victory for those reasons. Again, as we'll kind of maybe touch upon, it wasn't, we didn't see spectacular flashes of play. We didn't see a tactical performance that was through the roof or we didn't see like imposing passes. Uh, pass, uh, oh my, uh, I forgot the word there, but phases of possession and all, all of that. But we saw good, good heart and hustle. And sometimes I mean, as Canadians, we can appreciate that, and and sometimes in soccer, we don't we don't appreciate a, a victory just built off of those uh, very very Canadian cliche words. Yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a grit and grind performance for sure, and and when you look at the stats, really nothing stood out from either team. I mean, both were below eighty percent passing. There were I think forty two combined fouls, so you, you just you can get you know de- definite grindy vibes out of that match, but kind of from talking about the match generally to looking at some players specifically, I mean, the first guy that stands out is Michael Baldissimo and how much the game changed when he came on. I mean, neither of the Whitecaps' goals were necessarily, you know, postcard material. I mean, they weren't, they weren't that pretty, but at the same time, Baldissimo with good quality long balls, one off the set piece and one to kind of unlock Ali Adnan that ended up setting up the game-winning goal. I mean, he just, right now he has that ability to unlock the Whitecaps offensively in a way that really only Freddie Montero has other other than him. So thoughts on Baldy and, and the way he changed the match, Alex? I think it helped that he came in against tired legs. I think that RSL team really wore out. And it, and he took advantage, so it was great. But also I, what I like about him, is that his game doesn't waver when he's starting or if he's on the bench. Sometimes with the youngsters, you the, see the that. The confidence is the same no matter what. The consistency is there. Some youngsters, you see them get a good 10-minute cameo off the bench. You start them and they just don't – they look out of sorts. So, it, with me, with how Baldissimo's played since, I guess, since he first made his debut against Montreal, 
is he's pretty much one of the team's best players in terms of form right now. He's one of the most important players, let's just say, because you look at the Whitecaps' problems, surprisingly, aside from these little cold streaks they've had, finishing isn't the issue. If you look at the stats, like they consistently only shoot two, three, four shots on target a game, yet they'll score when they're on two, three goals. Like they're remarkably clinical with their chances. And you, the XG numbers back that up. I think they're, they, yeah, they're performing, performing well above their XG in terms of goal scored, I believe. So, yeah. So it usually indicates good finishing. You wouldn't believe it watching the white caps, but their issue again is chance creation. I think you look at the team right now, there's only, there are, well, there are a few names. I mean, David Milinkovic is definitely yeah. someone they've been hurting for lately because he's clearly struggling with the knock and hasn't started or when he's coming, he hasn't looked the same. I think, I think I forget which game it was. There's definitely a game he picked up a knock and he's just kind of working through it right now with the, how the schedule is. It's obviously hard and I think he's good enough to play. And that's why we see him kind of get these little spurts, but he obviously needs to sort that out because it's, it's affecting his game. But again, we have to remember that as of like four, I guess as of the RSL game, Milinkovic had four primary assists and on a full season was on pace for like 12 or 15 primary assists, which is ridiculous. So obviously his, absence is hurt on the left wing but then Montero definitely I mean since he's come in he's got what it's it's three goals and three assists but technically I mean in my opinion his he he had an assist on Saturday they don't count it in MLS but I feel like if you shoot the ball and the goalie saves it Cavallini capitalized on the rebound that should be an assist kind of like in hockey I mean if you're going to count a long ball secondary assists, which honestly, I think that's great. I think it's great. They count secondary assists. That's one thing in Europe. I, I like the idea of only counting primary assists to see who the creators are, but also they should count secondary assists to see who's kind of, who are the real, like who's building up the, who's making, who's freeing up the first assist. But I think like, for example, Montero's contribution on the second goal was immense for him to get a good shot on target. He didn't shoot it right at the goalkeeper. He forced a save. He forced the defenders back. And Cavallini, as a result, was onside and in a great position. So, But aside from Milinkovic and Montero, Baldissimo, he's the guy who's bringing... I talk about the assist to the assist. He brings that assist to assist. I think that's why, if you look at it, he has, what, two or three assists? Yeah, he has three assists. Well, technically, technically. Two, two assists, one against Montreal, a great long ball right on the feet of Theo Bear. Or no, he or he made the pass to the pass. Honestly, I'm getting confused right now, but he he's so good at making that pass to the pass. And we saw that on the second goal. He gets the ball in a half inch of space, looks up and just slams a volley right on Ali Adnan in the positions we'd love to see Ali Adnan in. Ali Adnan whips in one of those dangerous balls that kind of goes, bounces around the box and then boom, it's in the net. I think without Baldissimo on the field. Who who makes that pass? Leonard Owusu can make that pass. We haven't seen it yet in MLS. Daniel Bikel, he he's good. He's a good passer when the ball's at his feet, but he doesn't have that creativity to find that run. Does Russell Tybert make that pass? Again, he needs the ball settled. He's actually surprisingly good at long passes, but he needs the ball at his feet. Baldissimo has this, he has this technical ability that's off the charts compared to his compared to his teammate. So the Whitecaps just need to get the most out of him creative, creatively to get the most out of their offense because if they can create more chances through Baldissimo, they're going to be an infinitely better team. And just to kind of finish up on the Baldissimo point, you know, a lot of people 
whether it's in our comment sections on articles or whether it's on Twitter saying, how can Baldissimo not start? And I think it's a valid question, but I'd be curious. Again, this is something that when we don't have access to training, when they're set up you know, in the United States so far away and we get limited access, we just don't know. But you have to wonder whether or not that's a a fitness and kind of health management issue where they're not trying to run him for 75 minutes, 90 minutes, match in, match out. Uh, thoughts on that? Do you, do you think that's why he's maybe being held out and not getting consistent starts the way some fans might like to see? No, absolutely. I think I've 100% without a doubt with Baldissimo. He's the one guy I don't mind getting minutes loaded if, for lack of a better term, minute management. What was the one they'd always use for Kawhi Leonard? Load management? Yeah, it's the NBA load management. Like, he's the one guy I'm fine with. Like, someone like Theo Bear, I bet you that guy could play, like, 10 games in 10 10 days. He seems physically, he's not had any issues. He's fit. Ditto with some of the other youngsters. Patrick Metcalf, his body looks fine. I haven't been concerned with him. Ryan Raposo looks fit. But for those, Michael Baldissimo last year, even the last two years, injury, you just purgatory ankle muscle problems this and that with how strenuous the schedule is every two to three days travel game day travel like if there's a guy you need to manage maybe aside from someone like Eric Godoy it's Michael Baldissimo so I'm not I'm not at all against managing his, his minutes because again he's the most probably arguably if you're if you're considering that Whitecaps lack a chance creation, their biggest problem. He's their most important solution. So for him, you just make sure he can play it in every game, be it as a sub or as a starter. He's not one where you put him as a starter knowing that he won't play the next day. He's someone that you need as much of as possible in as many games as possible. So I'm all fine with the load management for him just because especially the scope of the injuries he's dealt with too. Like they're not they're not your typical injury. So he's, he's definitely one to, to take care of, let's say. So it's been, I haven't been mad about that, let's say, but obviously I'd like to see more of him, but he's one where in a, in a 34 game season with normal, normal travel, norm, normal scheduling, I think he'd, he'd be doing a lot better fitness wise right now. It's one of those things where, I mean, it's kind of obvious to a certain extent, but at the same time you can easily forget that injury is not a black or white issue. It's not like it might show up that way on the on the team sheet or it might show that up that way on the MLS injury report, but it's not like you're 100% or you're 0%. There's a lot of in between. And I know over the last couple of seasons, you know, you'd see Baldy out there doing individual drills and oh yeah, he's looking good. He's ready to go back to team training. And then there'd be a setback and it's like 2 months before you see him again. And all the Whitecaps staff, they've been through that with him. They know what he's dealt with. So much like you, I can totally understand. If you can get 30 minutes of brilliance, you'd rather take that than have him heading back to Vancouver to rehab for a couple months. So while, yes, I think would, not to speak for you, Alex, but I think both of us would love to see him go a full 96 matches in a row, but it's just not realistic right now. So you have to have to temper those expectations and I'm, I'm sure that the Whitecaps are trying to get him out on the pitch as much as they can within reason well especially not on turf I think that's best. especially playing on the Portland turf I think the Portland turf it must be one of the best in MLS among turf fields that is but again playing a, playing an injury someone who's dealt with muscle and 
nasty ligament ish issues like Baldi Smiles on tur- like playing them on turf. You, it's all about risk management, and uh, I guess kudos to the Whitecaps for doing that because some teams in their position, I mean, they're so close to the playoffs. Some people might go for broke and deal with deal, you know, put out their best cards and at risk of pain down the road, but they're being smart. I mean, Baldissimo's definitely a player that either if he plays really well, you sell him for a lot of money or he's someone you keep in your team and he makes your team infinitely a lot better. So it's, it's a definitely an asset you want to manage and you want to take care of, but I guess next to, to pivot on, talking about another young player as an asset that people have confounding views on Ranko Veselinovic, the Serbian center back still only 21. So we talk about his errors earlier. We, we do forget that despite his lengthy, surprisingly lengthy resume at the top, top, uh, top flight in Serbia, he's still only 21. And as Evan Bush kind of said, after the game, he's a young guy, those mistakes happen. It's just, it was a very unfortunate mistake. I mean, it feels like lately he's kind of been feeling it a bit. He's kind of hit that MLS mid-season slow in the trap. Call it call it the in-bomb special from last year or whatever you want to call it, but he's been hit hard by the elements. And the Whitecaps now, that was his 10th start of the season. After 12 start, he get, they trigger a purchase option, which some reports say $2 million. I don't know how valid that is. I mean, Personally, my guess would be somewhere between one and two million. So I, I could see upwards of two million, but obviously with the euros and US dollars and Canadian dollars, we have no idea. We never have an idea, sorry, of how exact the purchase option is until we see it triggered and announced. But I mean, it's tough. I mean, I guess we'll talk about his performance first. I mean, Sam, what did you kind of make of his play as a whole and the error? Because to give him credit, I thought he bounced back well after the error. He didn't let it take him down aside from maybe one reckless tackle in the 92nd minute that did kind of give us all a heart attack as he picked up a yellow and put a free kick in a dangerous position. But I credit to him. I said it in the post game report. I think as a, as a young guy that easily could have cratered his game, but he did bounce back. But again, at the same time, you can't be making errors like that at the professional level, especially for a team who has playoff aspirations. Yeah. I mean, Mark DeSantos said as much post-match that it's, you know, not really a inexcusable error. And I think that almost in a way makes it easier because then you just, you accept it and you move on. And yeah, in terms of, I kind of will second what you had to say about the rest of Ranko's game. I mean, I did the report card for 86 forever and I gave him a low grade, but I thought the rest of his match, other than that one moment of switching off was actually quite good and more like what we want to see from Ranko stepping up, making a number of really nice long passes, looking comfortable on the ball. I mean, you think he's got those, he's got those qualities that if you can imagine a couple years down the road, him and Godoy alongside each other as, you know, two really good defenders who are also comfortable on the ball can also make little runs up the pitch or actually surprisingly good passers. Like all those attributes, it feels like two complete center backs but yeah, Ranko's definitely feeling this kind of, you know, MLS midseason funk that guys get into. It's it's definitely a real thing. And I think also the league is not easy to adjust to. Some guys don't I mean, that was a super, super sloppy, disjointed match. And I think those games are maybe tough to get into the flow of sometimes and then you have moments where you you switch off where otherwise if the game was a little more free-flowing a little more what you're used to it might be easier to stay involved so 
I don't know. It's tough. I'm very curious, and maybe this is something if we have another roundtable with Axel Schuster, we'll get to ask. Do you think that COVID and everything that's gone on, does that affect or give clubs some movement in terms of those purchase options? Because, I mean, okay, you agreed to, say you agreed to buy Ranko for 1.8 mil prior to COVID if you played 12 matches. But now the financial circumstances of clubs are very different. The amount of games they've been able to play is very different. I do wonder whether or not there's some leniency there in that purchase option to maybe kick the can down the road or get get him for slightly less. I'm I'm not sure that'd be something interesting to explore, but I think it's tough because I I don't feel like there's been enough time to evaluate Ranko yet and decide whether or not that purchase option is a good idea. So I don't know if I I have an answer other than I I think I have faith long term in his ability to be a really good MLS center back. I just don't know if we're seeing it right now. I mean, the way I kind of see it is it'll ultimately come down to his his case is definitely going to be a case of where you see more of an asset management spiel taken because obviously you could not trigger the option with six games left. You run Godoy, Cornelius, Rose, maybe if Kamiri comes back, even throw Kamiri in and, you know, kind of keep Veselinovic only start him in one of the last six games. Obviously, that's always an option. Um, but because if you don't trigger it, you can technically negotiate. And if he likes it here, if you guys find an agreement, it works. But ultimately, will his team in, in Serbia get an offer that matches the purchase option if the Whitecaps don't meet it? Because teams in Europe, they're always looking for what might seem like a lot of money to an MLS teams, it could be peanuts. Oh, they, for a they could year. take a easily, someone could take a 3 million flyer on Ranko in Europe and probably not blink an eye. Honestly, even like a $1.5 million flyer, that's a steal for some teams. Like, say, like a bottom level team in one of the top five leagues, for example, or a top team in one of the fringe leagues, like say, I don't know, just a Celtic yeah. to throw it out well, there. Because they, they take a more the volume perspective towards asset management right it's like bring a bunch of these guys in on relatively affordable options and then if a couple of them pan out it's a good financial venture like a lot of those clubs are in a scenario where not all of their signings have to hit well they also play like celtic tends to dominate the league so you can kind of test out a guy against weaker team in the league play they like him you put him on the platform in the champions league or in the europa league play people scouts see him and all of a sudden he's a 20 30 dollar a 30 million dollar player so that's a whole other story though so with veselinovich ultimately i think it's going to come down to two things how how his long-term future is because again if at his price 1.5 million i paid if you know he's going to be here for three four five years and that's that doesn't even have to be as a starter doesn't even have to be as a star just if you know he's going to be here as a second or third center back for three or four years, that's worth the money. So you overlay it over the seasons. As long as he's not a DP, that's a reasonable investment MLS. Not enough people invest in defenders. And that's kudos to the Whitecats for being one of the teams that invests in defenders because it's a undervalued market. Like For example, getting Eric Godoy on, in on a permanent TAM deal was a nice piece of business in my, my opinion. But and then if not, it's, I think, you might have to let him go because if he's only going to be here for one or two years and you pay that 1.8 million, are you confident that you can confidently recoup that much 
to be worthy. Like, I feel like if you buy, sign him for one or two mil, at the very least, you want to sell him on for three or four mil if you're selling him within two years. But can they confidently say that? If the answer is no, I think you move on. You you run Cornelius, um, Godoy, keep Rosen, honestly, because he's been a solid center depth center back. You, you figure out what the heck to do with Kamir if you want to keep him or sell him. And then you go after a guy like Amir Didich, who's who's in the CPL and he's ready to make a jump up. And he'll he'll cost you maybe 100K, maybe 50K. Because we see how someone like Joel Waterman did. Heck, you go after Dominic Zator. You go after a, any CPL center back that's playing, you know, in, in the CPL who's Canadian. You go after that. Heck, you go after Thomas Mergeur at Pacific. There's so many names you can go after. Lucas McNaughton, just as a depth center back. And then you run with that. But if you know Veselinovic can stay and help out your team for three, four years, or you know that he's going to get sold on for a further value in one or two, then I say you take a, you start him and you trigger the purchase option. But if not, I feel like it's the sort of asset where you, you enjoyed having him on the team and he was a nice signing and a good, good piece for one season, but maybe not an asset where, okay, you move him on and you get someone like Amir did it chat. Boy, if he was 50 to hundred K, even 200 K, that's what, like one ninth of the price, one eighth of the price. And he's definitely not one eighth or one ninth of the player that Veselinovic is. I think the way you laid it out is pretty much perfect. I think that's the way the Whitecaps have to analyze it. But I do wonder, I feel like our opinions of what they should do with Ranko is perhaps different than how it's seen within the club, simply down to the fact that I think we are higher on Derek Cornelius than people within the organization are. Like, I don't get the sense that Mark DeSantos and Axel Schuster rate DC as highly as we do and I don't know if like I think we would be happy to say okay go forward with Godoy and Derek Cornelius as your center backs and bring in some CPL depth to fill in those other spots along with Yasser or other guys you bring in MLS vets but I'm not sure that the club is entirely there and so I think it's very much down to how they see Cornelius as a fit whether or not they feel like they have two center backs they can really rely on. And if they if they don't feel like they have that without Ranko, then maybe that, you know, forces their hand a little bit where Yasser's not the player they thought he might be. They're not in love with Derek Cornelius, and so they feel like they need a quality center back in there and they feel like Ranko is the answer to that. So I can I can see it from the other side and maybe there there's more pressure, even if it's for a year or two, to bring Ranko in. Again, not the way I view it, but I can see that there might be that thought process within the Whitecaps organization. And that makes a lot of sense. Cause I think with Derek Cornelius, he's tough to, to scout as a center back because you look at all of the other center backs, they have these qualities about them. They have this, like Eric Godoy has obviously his aggression, his presence on the field, his tackling. He's, He's kind of got that Argentine marshal to him where you just, you know, he's, he's, he's going to cause defenders, I mean, attackers headaches. You look at Jasser Kamiri, there's the height. There's a noticeable height. He's kind of got that wild card about him. You look at Veselinovic, he's, he's tall. He can play a 60-yard pass. He, you know, he's got that, that tool about him. Whereas Derek Cornelius, you look at him, and with him, he's, 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 he's a good defender. Well, he's just kind of he's above a, average at everything. Which he's, is... he's kind of like the jack of all trades, which is like... He, He's not. He's not a Alphonse Davies fast. He's fast enough. He's he can pass the ball long enough, but not like seventy yards. 
he's he can tackle well enough he's you know he's good at he's smart enough to get in the way of blocks like I think for me if I'm scouting Cornelius I, I I'd probably give him like average grades in physical attributes in passing probably above above average to even good or even great sometimes in terms of IQ just he, he puts himself in really good areas where you don't notice and then yeah and then he's a left footy a left footer which in in soccer doesn't make as much of a difference as say in hockey the whole lefty righty on defense kind of things and personally in soccer I, I like the idea of a left-footed center back and a right-footed center back just because it makes such a big difference to not ha- to be able to open up your hips and play the ball up the field but I know teams don't value that as much and it's not as big of a, of a difference so ultimately it it's tough because someone like Veselinovic for his Serbian team, because of his tools, they'll rate him higher. Or they'll tell the Whitecaps, be like, yeah, but he's, he's six, four and he's, he can pass the ball 60 yards and I can sell that to another team in Europe. will pay a lot of money for those attributes. So ultimately, like you said, it'll come down to how they judge Cornelius. I think the way I've kind of seen it is Godoy, as we've mentioned many times, can be a top five center back in MLS. We, we know that he's here for the long term. You don't worry about him. It's finding the guy alongside him and, Cornelius could be a great sidekick. He's got the perfect number two. He can play as a number one, but Cornelius is best as a number two. He's left-footed. They complement each other well. I think it's a good match. Do the Whitecaps agree? No idea. And heck, even in, the, in a certain in an ideal world where they have more time to work on it, they could also keep Ranko, Godoy, and Cornelius and run a mean three at the back with Ranko kind of in the middle as a facilitator, Godoy on the right and Cornelius on the left. They could always do that, but ultimately the team obviously would need a lot more training time, a lot of time in preseason more. In a year like this, they couldn't pull it off, for example, but they could always shift to that, assuming they keep someone like Adnan, buy another right back, kind of buy the pieces to to, to fit that. They always could, but ultimately I think it'll come down to how they judge Cornelius and Ranko Veselinovic. So you make a good point there. And that's kind of just how I feel I feel about it. I think if you keep – if Veselinovic goes and you've got Cornelius and a CPL center back and, heck, even Camille or Rose or figure that out, I'm fine with that. But it's a tough situation. But you, you got any, any, any last words on, on that before we move on to our favorite topic, the midfield? Yeah, I do. I, I think that it, just one thing I want to add is sometimes perception can differ from reality a bit and narratives can often be played in a certain way to kind of, you know – shape things for one side or the other and you know I, th- I think if we just think about Ranko and Derek side by side Derek feels like more of a vet and Ranko's the young rookie and yet there's just a little over a year separating these two Ranko's a March 1999 so an early 99 and Derek is a late he's a November 24th 97 so in reality it feels like Derek is a 25-year-old MLS vet, and it feels like Ranko's a young 20-year-old prospect. But in reality, there's only a year separating these two, and Derek's already got a lot of MLS experience under his belt. So I think that's just when you're comparing these guys and balancing them, it's important to look at, okay, like what are the, what are the facts as opposed to what do we think about these players in terms of narrative? Because sometimes, I mean, I find with myself even, I get that confused from time to time. That's a good segue because speaking of having narratives on players, Leonard Owusu and Daniel Bacal, I mean, there's Leonard Owusu, the creative midfielder who TSN still calls a defensive stopper, even though he's 
Mm-hmm. Yes, he's good at defending. He's good at playing number six, but his best oh, position goodness. is an eight or a ten who can facilitate. But I don't know how many times I'm gonna have to hear that on TV before I punch my head, my own head, headbutt my TV. It's so frustrating. And then obviously there's January Bakel, who he's a true defensive stopper. I mean, maybe they just got them two mixed up. But I mean, those are tough because I, I they're such polarizing players, and I, I think. For whatever reason, in this market, African players tend to be really polarizing because there's a lack of. It's the it's the it's the Jarju complex is what it is. There's like I, I wouldn't say there's a lack of information out there in African players. There's a lot of information, but obviously access to that information clearly isn't as prevalent as it should be, and it always leads to misconceptions, misperceptions about a player and biases towards the player because as a whole it's been but Bikel and Awusu are two tough ones to rate I think Awusu had an excellent MLS's back out of position as a number six obviously everyone watching him was like he feels out of position and he's been good move him up the field great and that just hasn't happened I think he's he's the double pivot if there's one person that's hurt it's been Awusu he just doesn't he, there's too much for him to do in a double pivot at least at MLS's back when he's playing the six it was in a three-man midfield usually so or 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 in like a yeah or a two man midfield, but he was playing so deep that it was okay. It just feels like obviously he's been tired, he's been injured, he hasn't looked good on that front, but it just also feels like he's been played out of position. And they, let's just say they haven't taken advantage of his strengths. And then Bakel has been a mixed bag because he started so strong, he hit a, a rut, he kept getting yellow cards, and then on Saturday he gets another early yellow card, but then he plays pretty darn good despite the yellow card and shows okay. I, you know, he's like, okay, I, yes, I've been reckless, but I can still play that fine line that I, I, I went over against Seattle and got a suspension, but I kept and managed and check against RSL, which is a great sign from a young defensive midfielder. Usually they don't have that maturity. Let's just say, I mean, he, he did show his, his age with the red card against Seattle, but at the same time, he showed that he can be mature. He can play above his, his age against RSL. So, I mean, those two are tough to gauge because... Ultimately, I think both of them, their best position is in a three-man midfield. I think Bikel is a six with guys in front of him to play off of helps him. I think Awusu, there's too much work for him to do as a number eight in a 4-4-2. And then we talk about Baldissimo. He needs to be a three-man midfield. You want to see them to get play together at one point. There's six games left. We've yet to see them start together. I mean, Sam, I guess what are your, kind of your thoughts on Bikel and Awusu since, we, since I just brought them up? Yeah, well, I think, so the reason that I, I, I stuck them in the notes is because every time I go into a 86 Forever post-match report or even look on Twitter or look at the report card, I see such a wide variation of views. I mean, everything from these guys aren't MLS quality, get them out of here, to being, you know, really high believers in either Owusu or Bikel, but it's obvious it's often not both of them. Usually someone's really high on one and very low on the other. And it's it's been again in this weird MLS COVID year, it's been hard to evaluate players, and I think that, that does show. My feelings, I think I'm not concerned about Bikel at all. I think he okay, he has he's got to keep his arms down. That much is clear. He's and he's getting used to the league a bit too. I think maybe that's, you know, place you get away with that elsewhere. But in MLS, guys, you know, are clutching their face pretty quick if you're not careful. And, uh, you know, and yeah, he, he's been spotty. It's been back and forth. But I think you could see 
even in that match against RSL, I know some people had mixed views, but I thought he was really good, really sturdy defensively. Really, the card was the only issue. And overall, it feels like the quality's been there, and it feels like the consistency's only going to build up as he becomes more familiar with the team. And it also seems like Bakel is a guy that's going to get better as the team gets better. Like, if the rest of the midfield is solid around him, and if the Whitecaps spend more time attacking, he's going to continue to look better in the eyes of fans. Now, Owusu, I don't know. I really want to be a big Owusu fan, and you've kind of been guiding me on on the Owusu positivity train, and I've been with you for a lot of it, but I have to admit I am, I'm having my doubts. Because it's funny, so I bring up Owusu's Vancouver Whitecaps profile, and the description is a strong, powerful, dynamic central midfielder. I don't know if I've seen that so far. Especially his ability to stay on the ball. Like, it feels like he gets, it feels like his, whenever he's on the ball, it's easy to knock him off or that he's, he's not that sturdy on it. And as much as you look at the passing rates and the passing success, he's always 85% or higher. Like, he's really effective. But I feel like when I'm watching in match, the time where he needs to play that crucial ball forward, there's an opportunity and he's got to put it on someone's foot. It feels like those passes are often missing. And so, He's a young guy too. I mean, he's only 23. It's it's a new league. He was playing in Israel before. There's there's so much time to develop. But I do feel like in terms of relative to expectations, you were hoping that when he moved further up the field, which he's only done on a few occasions, it would it would look better. And yeah, I don't know if again, the, that double pivot, it's not the right spot for him, but I'm still I feel like there's some more things we should be seeing from him. And maybe it's acclimatization maybe it's just he really doesn't like playing at that position but it, it has been a little bit disappointing i mean Awusu, it's good you bring him up because i'll i'll, I'll c- conclude Bikel because i think we, there's a consensus there in my opinion i think at the top level of his game so far he can be a competent to good mls number six and there's potential for more i think that's for his price i think he could has the potential to be a good piece for the white caps he's definitely one looking at the next year's lineup like you could see a, a midfield of him, Baldissimo, and a third, like a DP, being good enough in MLS, if not even better. Whereas Awusu, the jury's out on him. But it's good you bring up Awusu because I've got recently gotten into a good debate about Awusu with the one of one of our. I'll, I'll shout him out. He's because he's listening. Shout out to, to our guy Bo from BNG Media. It was uh, we're having a good discussion about Awusu because he, he brought up some good points saying about how Gaddy Kinda and at Sporting KC was when they both came in, they're like, Oh, very comparable. They 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 tore up, you know, they were good in Israel, they they're they're good creators. And obviously Gaddy Kinda's been an elite MLS midfielder. He's been lights out. I was look I did his so a, a chart just to see kind of how his some of his numbers were were rating and he just generates goals at an astounding rate. And he's a good at getting into, he's a good number 10. He's getting into good areas and finishing chances. But what I found interesting in that despite having way more assists and key pass, passes than Awusu, Kinda was significantly behind Awusu in terms of completed passes in the final third, like goals added in the final third and all these stats, which, Owusu, for some reason, he doesn't get to the final third enough, and I think it's due to positioning. But whenever he's there, he gets the ball into good areas. 
he gets the balls to the ball to to rate uh, to the right people, and it it rated well in his stats that suggest that he makes the, he makes the offense more valuable when he gets touches in the final third. So looking at that stat, I do wonder about again positioning because I agree I, the way he was described. I don't think that's clearly that's not fair or he hasn't lived up to that. I don't think strong should be associated with him. You just look at his body type. He's so slim. He's, he's kind of one and he's a good dribbler. I think he's second on the team in dribbles per game. He's more, more of a first. finesse player than I think people realize. Come, and that's where, I, I think that's where the African stereotype comes into play. Unfortunately, sure. I think he, he gets lumped in with strong. He's just, he's what, like five, eight, like, you look at him, he can't be more than 150. Yeah. Like, I, I, I would, he's, yeah, and I wouldn't say he's big yet. His dribbling well, rates are like astounding. I mean, he's he dribble, listed he, he can, at 5'11, 160, which is nowhere close to accurate, I don't think. Well, may, maybe it's accurate, but he doesn't look 5'11, yeah. 160, you said? That's what it says, 160. I, I could see 160, maybe 150. If I'm being generous and height, you, you never know because you look on TV. Someone like Baldissimo's five five. That's it, it's mind blowing. And then you got someone like Camiri who's six four. But I mean, he's he's not physical. I think that's definitely one. Uh, maybe how do I say it? Stereotype, a misconception that just needs to be thrown out. He's not. He's not. He's not going to be. Even look at like someone like Janubakel. Like Janubakel's got that strength, that that grit, that grind to him. But Abusu definitely doesn't have that that power at least not to the same extent that you would expect but i'm i'm just while while i talk i'm figuring out some of his stats but yeah i feel like he just needs to be played further forward cuz you we we talked about his scouting report before the season we spoke to someone who'd seen him play since he was mm-hmm. in ghana so someone who has a fair evaluation that the one that will always stick out to me is the text message passing and i think we see that he he his passing is very good in the final third even from deep he gets the ball to to his teammates consistently, and for me, the thing that stuck out again is his dribbling, his his progression of the ball when he's on the ball. For me, it feels more of a case of not being deployed in the right areas to progress the ball, not not getting the ball enough, maybe being even a bit too shy. Because we see these moves in game where he'll get the ball, boom, turn, two guys gone, he makes a pass, and it's a little thing, but it helps the Whitecaps attack. So, with him, he's definitely one I want to see deployed for the four because I, while I feel like maybe he's been a bit of a disappointment I feel like heck here you go he's he's 22nd in MLS amongst all players in terms of goals completed per game like that's in terms surprising of like, sorry I, I missed that. you look at some of the gu- dribbles completed per game he's got 1.7 that ties him with Kevin Molino in 22nd I mean you look at some of the guys around him or under him, Christian Espinoza on, on San Jose is below him. Jordan Morris is below him. Um, Pablo Piatti is just ahead of him with 1.8. You look at some, Gaddy Kinda is behind him. Um, Richie Larea, one of the best dribblers in MLS. Like, that's a good, com- that's some good company to hold in terms of dribbling. I feel like that's an understated stat of his. So, I don't know. For me, it feels like he needs to play as a number eight. I think he can play as a number six, but they have Bikel. And you look at their problem chance creation, he can do that. Him, him and Baldissimo can do that. So why not play them together as eights in a four-three-three and see if that helps your team get better? That's, it's good points you bring up. So I have I have two things to to add to that. And one is that 
even though this is probably not his position going forward, I think it illustrates your point about him thriving in more advanced positions and thriving in the final third. The one appearance that I think really like passed the eye test for me, and I was like, whoa, this is what Owusu can do when he's at his best, was actually in that number 10 role when he was interplaying with Freddie. It was, he came on as a sub against Montreal about 25, 30 minutes. That was the time that it like, it popped. And that was where we, we were in person for that, weren't we? Yeah, we were. Yeah, we were. So I, I recall that very vividly as being like, okay, this is what Owusu can do. I think they just have to find a way. It's probably not going to be at the 10, but find a way at the eight to get those same qualities out of him. So I, I am hopeful. It's just, it's been a little bit frustrating lately. And then in terms of the dribbling, again, I think my challenge there would be where are those dribbles occurring and in what moments of the match? Because I feel like he, he is a good dribbler, but it's not necessarily in crucial areas. It's more just kind of in the midfield squirming away from people. So I think that, you know, context does matter there in, in terms of that stat. Yeah, well, I'll see if I can find another stat. To at least not maybe, a, like, I, I feel like I need some special program to find out how, where his dribbles are. There's definitely an app out there where you just click. Yeah, and average dribble location or something. Uh, like oh, there's definitely, st- there's definitely something out there, but obviously I don't have access to that right now. I don't have the funds. Well, we, can, third, so. we, we, can, we can circle back, but uh, do we want to, I mean, uh, do, you, do you have something else you want to add before we, before we move elsewhere on the pitch? I'll add my. I'll, I'm looking up a star right now. I'll add it in a, in a short minute. But the last thing I'd say for for Wusu, play just play him further forward. You want to talk about getting the most out of your team and fixing your problems? Try try playing a Wusu further forward as an eight or as a number ten, and just figure out. I just think the Whitecaps need more in midfield. They need more creativity. That's their issue. Again, Freddie Montero, Lucas Cavallini. You're gonna have to figure out something to do with them because clearly Montero needs to start. I feel like that's at least if he keeps playing the way he has. So figure out where do you play him? Where do you put the guys around him? Do you play Cavallini on the wing, for example, as kind of a hybrid wing striker? That was an option we were talking about pre-show. Do you play, do you, you know, do you, do you, do you put three men midfield? Do you play Wusu as a 10, but he's more defensively competent than say some of the other options at the number 10. Do you play, do you play Wusu in a left mid role the Matuidi he can fill the role better than say Russell Tybert can in the left mid role do you it's just figuring out how to get the best pieces out of the puzzle and ultimately that's not easy as a coach but you kind of have to mold the team around and I just see the Whitecaps they consistently struggle to create chances I feel like one could fix that problem but obviously he just hasn't been able to and I don't think he's been deployed right well that kind of brings us to that left wing, left mid position that Russell Tybert's been playing. So actually, honestly, before I say anything, I want to hear your thoughts on how you think that's worked out and whether or not that's something the Whitecaps should keep entertaining going forwards. I mean, I think that we're probably definitely for LAFC looking for a formation switch because I don't think the 4-4-2 is going to work at all against LAFC, but curious to hear your thoughts on how you think that experiment has gone. Oh, I don't know what to think about that one. I mean, he's been competent on the way, I'll say, for him. I think he's he's done a job, but I just don't think that's getting the most out of him nor the, the team. I, I did like how it looked on our, against RSL because it was like a 3-5-2 in possession, and Adnan kind of filled his space, and he'd cut in. 
but I just think there's better people for that role. Heck, you could play again, like I said, Leonard Owusu, and have him cut inside and play more of a winger. I feel like he has more winger attributes, more creativity, creativity, more dribbling. That that could maybe get the way would be a way to get more out of him. But I just think at that point you should either just play a four three three with Tybert, uh, Owusu, and Bikel, or you know, put David Milinkovic or Reiner Poso on the wing. That was just kind of how I how I felt about that. Yeah, my my piece on this issue would be stop trying to compensate for Ali Adnan. Like, just play a shape and play a a lineup that each player provides something of their own. Where it felt like Tybert in this position, he was essentially just there to cut in and make room for Ali Adnan. And I'm not sure. We've seen a number of experiments throughout this season, whether it was Dahomey at wing back or then putting Gutierrez and Adnan side by side and having them kind of swap positions constantly back and forth. It just feels like every time they've tried to do something outside the box with that left-hand side, it hasn't necessarily worked the way they wanted it to. And I think so long as your midfielders are aware and a guy like Bikel or a guy like Tybert, if he's in the midfield, is aware that Ali's going to charge for it and they can go cover for that. You don't need to put someone on the left wing specifically just to cut in and drop back for Adnan. I think you can be a little more clever than that. And it just, it kind of felt like you're playing with 10 and a half men at points. And that's no slight to Tybert, like looking at his stats, from those couple matches on the wing, he's just not getting the ball. He's just not getting involved. That's not his fault. I think that's just kind of tactically a waste, at least in my view. I think that's that's probably as, as best as I'll put it. He, he just seems so out of place, especially in the four four two. Again, maybe there's a few guys I'd see played out of position before Tybert. I just feel like, if anything, switch Tybert and Awusu. I feel like Awusu brings more to that left mid role. At least he'll, he's more, it just felt so weird to put a left footed center mid in the left wing. It felt like it narrows the field down. At least a Wusu, he's right footed. He could cut in and then compliment Adnan more. It just feels like same thing when Gutierrez was playing left mid, he's left footed. It just feels, it, they just don't seem to complement each other. Well, if you have an overlapping fullback, you'd rather have someone who's more of an inverted player. That's why you play a Malinkovic there you'd play a heck an Awusu like I've said a couple times even dating back to a few weeks ago just try something I feel like the left footed thing doesn't complement Adnan well because then they occupy the same channels whereas a right footer will want to cut in centrally and they kind of complement each other more and that's why I think it's no coincidence that when Ryan Raposo came on at left mid that Ali Adnan's the one delivering the ball on the winning goal because Ryan Raposo cuts in, takes an, takes a, a defender with them, all of a sudden, and then runs into the space freed up by Raposo. Baldissimo finds him. Great chance. That's I feel like that's no coincidence to me. So if you're going to stick with the four four two and you want to get the most out of Adnan, either you just straight up play Adnan on the left mid, or if you're playing him at left back, put in someone who can cut in more and operate centrally. And then Adnan will occupy that space anyways. Or you just go to a four three three. And he'll come up anyways, and you'll have sufficient cover. That's kind of how I feel about that. Like, what I would have liked about the idea of a Wusu there is that it feels like he provides something of his own from that left-wing position. And so, yes, he's got the defensive capability to fill in, cover, you know, cut in, do that. But he also, just as a left-winger, brings something to the table. 
And I think that was the problem with Tybert is that, yes, he might have played that position when he was much younger, but at this point, he doesn't really bring much to that role other than defensive cover. And so it just, yeah, it felt like a waste. But that brings us to, I guess, more tactics talk, really, which is something we end up getting into a lot. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about the Lucas Cavallini and Freddie Montero partnership and kind of more importantly than the match against RSL, if they're going to switch things up, how do they switch things up for LAFC and how does that affect those two front men for the Whitecaps? Well, I guess kind of last point to conclude on Tyra. All I, what I was going to say is he's a, he's a jack of all trades player, which unfortunately those players don't tend to do well in the wing. They're great in the midfield. They're great at fullback. But on the wing, that's just heck. If he was taller, he could try him at center back. But ultimately, and, that's just how I felt. Let's, and by I just no means he was not poor in that role. No, like it no, wasn't, it was, wasn't like he was bad at playing the wing. It's just he doesn't maybe bring as much to the table as other options, and it just feels like a misuse of his qualities. Exactly, and it just yeah. It, I think you got what you expected from him. But Cavallini and Montero, that's a tough one because I want them to play together. They got good partnership. But it just it ultimately is it. Are you able to drop Milovic into home or Baldissimo for him for for them? Because that's ultimately what it's come down to. Or one of the three midfielders. Because again, we mentioned to get the most out of Bikel. Well, Bikel can play in a double pivot, but to get the most out of Baldissimo and Awusu, it feels like you need to put him in a three-man midfield, and then you drop guys. I mean, right now Milinkovic is clearly unfit and should be coming off the bench. I I feel like that's a that's a fair a fair assessment of him right now. So what do you do? Do you play Cavalini on the wing? Do you play, you know, as a hybrid wing? Or do you play Montero at left wing, knowing that he'll just cut in and play centrally anyways, and then you use the Adnan overlap threat? Because, I, you know, you have to figure out how to get the best, most out of that partnership. And, you know, I think right now, for the next game, LAFC, I think this is a good experimentation game because you got slapped last time doing a 4-2-3-1. And I like the 4-2-3-1. Don't get me wrong. I've been a fan of it. But if there's a team where you can't afford to, to lose superiority in midfield, it's against LAFC. It's like it's like a, a Guardiola-esque team where the, the philosophy of Guardiola was always he'd always there was a saying about Guardiola it was if, if the other team plays two in the midfield he plays three if the other team plays three he plays fourth the other team tries to put five he plays six and with LAFC it feels like a team where you need to at least match their numbers in midfield because they play so smoothly through the midfield and it's good for the Whitecaps that Mark Anthony K is probably not going to play unless they miraculously fix his ankle in time I think he has to be out for at least a week I look like a pretty Maybe even nothing's term. broken, but it looked like a pretty nasty sprain. So I don't I don't imagine we're going to be seeing him. At least not as a stutter. So I, I my prediction would probably see, see Janela at West and Blessing, and I mean that's a, that's a solid midfield. Anyways, that's, that doesn't change much in in terms of quality in terms of a B midfield. You have to put three men on them. I feel like last time it proved the danger of sitting back in a Benka too. You can sit back and on it. You could sit back, but you have to put a three. You have to put a three. Kind of almost man mark them, take as much of their quality. And the Whitecaps are lucky. There's no Diego Rodriguez. There's no uh, D- Diego Rossi. It's Diego Rodriguez, right? I always confuse. No, Diego Rodriguez is a former Whitecaps. Brian Rodriguez. Okay, I'm confusing Brian Rodriguez and Diego Rossi. So it's basically going to be Brian uh, Bradley Wright Phillips and 
Danny Muvkoski, who, you know, credit to him for scoring a brace and winning the MLS Player of the Week. I mean, surprising, but let's just say it's it's not the same quality, let's say. No Carlos Vela, not the same quality. If you're the Whitecaps, you take away their supply. Because I think the fact that Danny Muvkoski scored two goals this week, the fact that Bradley Wright Phillips has eight or nine goals this year, like having a renaissance season at 36, it shows how good the supply to the forwards are. I think, and just imagine Lucas Cavallini on the LAFC team. He would have scored like 15 goals this season, like by now, not even kidding. Like the, the quality of service they give is astounding. So you have to cut the supply. I think you play a three-man midfield to fix Freddie and Montero and Lucas Cavallini's best qualities. You look, how do you want to attack LAFC? And you know what? I think today would be a good, or today, it's not even today, but the game would be a good chance for the 4-3-1-2. It's a formation. Honestly, I don't mind the 4-3-1-2. The 4-3-3 and the 4-3-1-2 are similar, but the, the slight difference is that you play two strikers, they're attacking the center backs. And if you look at that LFC lineup, where they're too weak, where's their biggest weakness right now? Center back, probably. Aside from Eddie Segura, it's probably going to be one of Dejan Yakovic or... I don't even know. They've been rotating uh, their center backs. They even put in Traore, who's like an 18-year-old kid who, who just who moved to, to L.A. Or, or to the U.S. a year or two ago from Senegal. Like, their center back position isn't that imposing. I'm going to see who they played against LAFC. They played Yakovic, who, again, Canadian, good good guy, solid defender, not exactly what you'd call fleet of foot. And, I mean, the other options are, again, Mohamed Traore, and that's pretty much it. So, if you're the Whitecaps, you put two strikers on their, their center backs. Make them worry. I mean, if Yakovic is playing the left center back again, put Cavalini or right center back, you put Cavalini on him. That's a foot race Cavalini takes takes care of. And then you put three men on the midfield. You you try to man mark your way out of the, the LFC pressure and you put a number 10 in between them. Raposo, honestly, could play that role. You could put Montero at the 10 and put Bear at striker in a 4-3-1-2. Because I, I feel like in this game, that's the the, the way to get the most out of Cavallini Montero long term. That's a tough question. I think against a team like RSL, not good in midfield, you play Montero and Cavallini together. And at nine slash 10 a team where you need more in midfield and less up front. Cause you're going to be on the counter. You do wonder, do you take Montero off? Cause he doesn't really have the legs to play in the counter and you use him as a super sub and you leave Cavallini in. That makes sense. And if there's a game where you're going to have more possession, you play Montero but ultimately, it's going to have to go game by game. I can't look at them and see there's a perfect way to manage them because each game offers a unique set of challenges, a unique set of tactics. And ultimately, that leaves one of them on the side. But I think if you're Mark DeSantos and you're able to bring one of them off the bench, that's a luxury that it's pretty darn good as a coach to have. And it's it's worked so far when they've, when they've tried it. Well, that was a, a lot of information to unpack. And I think uh, definitely... We'll have, that was. <laughs> we'll have already explained some of what is going to go into my lineup and probably yours as well that we're predicting for the LAFC match. But just the last couple notes on RSL. There's the third sub of the match to get to, but before that, I just want to do a little ode to Jake Nerwinski, who we've been banging the drum all year about his improved play, his quality performances. And I thought Jake was a real strong performer at RSL or well not at RSL in Portland against RSL. So um, Alex thoughts on Jake. 
Jake, he he just he's solid defensively this year. I think that's the big thing for me. I was, he's made some glaring individual errors, and I mean now you do wonder if you remember the RSL goal that Maram scored. Maram, assist, over- Maram assisted, and it was Kralak or Krylock. No, I'm talking about the first game. I'm talking about the oh, first game. Oh, that's played. right. Oh, okay. Norwinski was overloaded at the back post. I think that was you- Maram's goal. I don't know. Yeah, it was. Now you do wonder. I think RSL, obviously, they tried overloads. It's smart. Ranko Veselinovic fell asleep. But aside from little moments like that, Norwinski, his tackling, his, his game reading, his defensive skills have improved massively. And what I liked in the RSL game is that he had some panache. He completed, I think he led the team in dribbles. And there were good, calm dribbles. He'd beat a man or two, and he would actually open up possession for the Whitecaps. And too often at fullback, you see them get the ball and just lump it to no one or pick it out of play. And it was good to see Nerwinski kind of have that Adnan confidence that we typically see from Adnan, but not Nerwinski. And if it's a case with him, you want to see him get further forward because he's shown an ability to score now this year and whip in good balls when he gets forward. But it just feels like offensively he needs more confidence, but defensively he's turned into a very good defensive MLS right back, which is that's what you want, really. I think you don't you love your fullbacks to get forward and contribute to the attack. I think a good full people are realizing that a good fullback in 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 soccer can change a team as well as like as much of a bad fullback can hurt it a team. But I feel like Jake Nowinski's defensively is. Uh, defensive attributes have helped him immensely and good on MLS for recognizing that and putting him in the team of the week. I thought that was a nice, a nice touch. So good on Nerwinski. Keep on growing, keep on being confident. Hopefully you can uh, see more of him in the final third. Yeah. Well, well-deserved award, I think in my estimation. So that brings us to the third sub of the match. And that was Derek Cornelius in the 87th. So obviously a defensive substitution to preserve the lead. Um, not really a ton of to say I don't think about his uh his actual performance against RSL but uh a word on a word on Derek Alex overall third sub of the game boy what what can I say clinical like imposing um I just I, I liked it you bring on a, a third center back you throw him into the mix I mean it was the kind of third sub that you, you like to see five minutes of just doing what you need to do and getting a win it was it was very well well tactically planned usually I feel like coaches should always I, I like that idea of just throwing an extra body back at the end of the game because usually at the end of games when people are crossing in balls there's good to have an extra body in there so I liked it I liked Derek's play in five ten minutes and it, it showed potential that I feel like a Veselinovic Godoy Cornelius if worked on back three could actually be good say in 2021 but obviously not this year I'll, I'll put that out right away before anyone comes after me with a pitchfork but yeah clinical yeah the word for me is tidy three touches three clearances one aerial dual one so ruthless ruthlessly efficient did exactly what he came on to do so yeah n- not a ton to add in that respect and then so the other thing we were going to bring up and you you tagged me as well as the third sub account in this last night, but there are some interesting analytics or just really stats in terms of MLS substitutions since there's been the option for five and how 
different managers have used, or in the case of Terry Henry, not used the full allotment of five subs. And I have to say, although Mark DeSantos's use of subs, I think still from an effectiveness perspective, can certainly be questioned. He actually is near the top of the league in terms of using his full allotment. Yeah, and I think that's to give credit to the Whitecaps. There's one thing that they've been good at, and I'll, I'll applaud is the, the amount of Canadians they play in as a whole, but the amount of young Canadians they bring off of the bench or just Canadians in general. I think that's it's always nice to see that off the bench. Typically, you'll see a guy like Ryan Raposo, Theo Bear, Patrick Metcalf, Baldissimo. And I think that's that's always good. Obviously, you'd like to see some of them start. Like Theo Bear, always, it feels like he always earns starts. And just same with Raposo. Those two have kind of been under underused at times. But I feel like he's good at getting young Canadians on the pitch, which is always nice. And for, for us, I think it's just using his subs more of a, a weapon, using knowing that it can be even the placebo effect of subs. So I think that's interesting to see the impact. I think Montreal is a great example of why you need to use more subs because I've watched their games. They always start out really well. And ultimately, this is interesting because he typically, it always feels like he doesn't have the op- it's hard to explain. Like he'll need attackers, and it'll be a coincidence. His attackers are injured or suspended. And he'll have three center backs, and he's like, "Shoot, okay, I'm not going to bring on a center back when I need a goal." But ultimately, Montreal could benefit from. I feel like they've lost four to seven points just off of substitution management and fatigue, because their lineup they need to work on their depth, for example, and bring in another DP, obviously, because they have a spot open. But whereas the white cap. So you can see they have one of the deeper teams in the league. We mentioned that in terms of depth, at least before maybe Reyna was traded and Inbaum was sold, they were surprisingly deep at most positions. For them, the question was more talent and in the midfield. They need depth in the midfield, but they have on high end, high end quality as well. Yeah, they need high end quality, but they got a lot of depth up front. They got a lot of depth at the back. I mean, they're on their fifth goalkeeper. I mean, training for Bush augmented that depth, but they've got depth at the back. So they clearly they've got the pieces for subs. They just need to use it more and wield it better. But I thought that was, it thought that was interesting to see that as much as things are, we love to complain about that sort of thing. It isn't. It could be a lot worse. We could be, we could be a Montreal Impact podcast going out, tearing our head out, watching Thierry just. He's the only manager not to use more than three subs in a game this year, which I just find bonkers. I'd be as a coach, I'd be out there like going full Matias Almeida, like. 60th minute oh my half of my team's been terrible okay quintuple sub let's go for it <laughs> yeah so uh, i guess at least a, at least a partial mia culpa there where we'll admit that the stats actually look a, a little bit better than maybe we felt at times but i i think there's still there's still more that could be done to stay creative with those subs and one of the things that i think we'd like to see is more halftime subs especially when the match isn't going tactically in the team's favor but with that, that kind of brings us to, I mean, we've already touched on how this team's going to match up against LAFC a little bit, but um, the Californian team dropped a match to the Quakes, but since then, back-to-back 3-1 victories over RSL and then impressively over Seattle. And really in that Seattle match, I mean, other than a moment of brilliance from Nico Ladero on a free kick, LAFC very much in control of that one, showing exactly what they can do and why, even though they're not at the top of the table, they're still the class of the Western Conference. 
I mean, quality-wise, they have quality. They've struggled with... It's just mind-boggling that they haven't had Carlos Vela all year. He's played, like, a game out of, like, the 18 they've played. So I think that's a huge absence. I think right now, missing Diego Rossi and Brian Rodriguez. I mean, signing Bradley Wright Phillips was a smart piece of business for their team. Just knowing what they could, you know, what he can bring and working around that. Midfield, they're still great. Defensively, why the heck did they trade Walker Zimmerman and get rid of Tyler Miller and goal? Like, you just look, it's just in their struggles. It's funny to me how their struggles this year, which have been defensively, was so self-imposed. Like last year, they're one of the best defensive teams and they trade Tyler Mill to Minnesota. Minnesota becomes one of the best defensive teams in the league. Well, they already were, but they got even better thanks to having in one of the best back lines. And then Walker Zimmerman's traded to Nashville. Nashville is one of the best defensive teams in MLS. Like, thanks, because I have Zimmerman in my fantasy team and he does business for me every week with the amount of points he gets. But like, why? Why did they trade two of their best players and bring in Kenneth Vermeer, high-profile international, but just unfortunately just not a good goalkeeper. They're playing Pablo Cisniega over their TAM high-level international goalkeeper, which kind of gives you an idea of where things are at with Vermeer. And then obviously the center backs, they're playing Dejan Yakovic. I like Dejan Yakovic, but he's just not suited for the high line of LEFC whatsoever. He'd be good in another setup, but are better in a better because he, he's been good, but I just don't think he fits and he's been exposed at times. And ultimately it's, it shows the danger of, uh, of tinkering with the, what works, but at the same time, they didn't tinker with their offense and, and against the white caps team that can tend to give up goals in a bunch in bunches. It's, it's going to be all be all about avoiding the tsunami because last year when they won, they kept them off the board and they were fine, but it feels like with LFC, you give them one, all of a sudden it turns into four. So if you're the Whitecaps, you, you just got to avoid the glaring individual error because you can get away against it, with it against RSL. To be honest, they got away with it against Portland. They just couldn't finish their chances. They didn't get away with it against Seattle and uh, San Jose. But against LAFC, you absolutely can. If you, you give up a goal, I think it's, it's – if you give up the first goal, sorry, it's game over. Just have leeway, but you cannot, cannot give up the first goal. Well, and so it was a guy you brought up earlier that I'll bring up again, Daniel Mazovsky, who, you know, bounced around, was played a lot with uh, Reno in the USL, and then was like the property of the San Jose Earthquakes, but never actually got to play for them. And I mean, congrats to him for a great uh, two-goal performance against Seattle and, and well-deserved the, the player of the week. But at the same time, they were two relatively simple finishes, and it just goes to show the the quality of the service, the quality of the opportunities that LAFC creates. Like, as you said, if Lucas Cavallini was in that squad, he'd have 15 goals already. It's certainly scary, and so for the Whitecaps, it feels like it's going to be very much an operation of cutting the service rather than defending the chances, if that makes sense. Because I think by the time the service is sent in, you're already in trouble. So you have to do your best to cut that service out and to stress LAFC defensively so that they don't have opportunity upon opportunity to play the ball into your box. And then the other note I had was you're talking a little bit about their you know, defensive fragility and just the way they've kind of shot themselves in the foot. A guy that stood out to me recently, looking back at some of LAFC's matches, but in a positive way, was 
Jordan Harvey, former Whitecap, who's been, for lack of a better term, balling out lately. Like he looked awesome against Seattle, had a goal line clearance with his head, uh, played a great like little back heel flick that helped set up a goal. And then against RSL, he actually played at center back, so he's been used a little bit everywhere. And uh, so that's a guy to definitely, obviously Whitecaps fans will be keeping an eye out for him as a fan favorite former player, but uh, be interested to see how they use him against the Whitecaps, whether or not he stays in the starting lineup because he's played a lot of minutes recently, but uh, that's something to watch out for. And, and as you said, I think, you know, even if Harvey's back there in a center back or right back role, like it's something the Whitecaps can look to, you know, if you've got Lucas Cavallini matched up against Jordan Harvey in a scenario, you have to like Cavallini's ability to win that matchup. So that's something certainly Mark DeSantos will be looking at those kind of matchups and how they can make the most of them. Yeah, it, it's going to be a tough one to gauge tactically because I'm thinking of those they need to win. Obviously, midfield is one. We, we, we've said enough about midfield. I do think they have to find a balance with their line because LAFC destroys high lines, but also you can't sit too, too deep. You, you kind of just so have to be good at everything, which is, which is hard. You, you just have to find a, you have to shield your back four properly. I just think if they're going to sit deep, they have to shield their back four better than they did. If they play high, I don't think they should play high. I think they should play mid to low. This is a game where I'll accept mid to low against LAFC, but be better in front of the, the low block because the low block had no chance last time because it kept getting broken. I think you need your fullbacks to be tight on their lines and limit the space on the wings. I do think playing narrow could be an option just because you'd want to target the fullbacks. But if you're targeting the fullbacks, you're taking away a body in midfield, which at this point I don't think is worth it for the Whitecaps right now. They don't have the pieces to, to necessarily lose that battle. So I think it's, yeah, just be be compact, but be compact in the right areas. Maybe play that 4-3, that bank of 4-3. Honestly, even a midfielder could drop back and make it a 4-4, two good banks of four. Honestly, yeah, I think that's what the, the kind of what you want to target. And then the counter, try to catch someone like Yakovic or Harvey High because they might not be the most fleet of foot. Lucas Cavallini could take advantage of that matchup. If you get the ball, control the ball. But if you're, you know, if the LAFC press is getting too much for you, hit the ball long into the right areas for someone like Cavallini to chase onto. And that makes sense, more sense of a strategy. And yeah, just ultimately target those battles because as much as you want the Whitecaps to go hold 60, 70% possession, if there's a team you don't want to do that against, it's LAFC. So it's just, it's, it's, it's tough because they showed it last year and this year. I mean, last year when they beat LAFC at home, it was a great game plan. They, they sat deep, but they sat deep well. They scored first, and they, they hung on. Because when you when you score first against LAFC, it, put, it puts you in a way better position. Because they're, again, a team they score once, and all of a sudden it's four. That's why you see they have such high goals for stat, uh, stats. So for the Whitecaps, you sit deep, you score, you're, you, you, you get forward, you get that one or two chances, you score, and then I think you're in a great position. If you, if you concede first, though, unfortunately, it turns into a three or four. 4-1 or a 4-0 for me. And I think we've seen that the two times. I mean, it, it, it's mind-blowing that the Whitecaps scored first last year when they lost 6-1. But they again, they gave up two. All of a sudden, it was game over. So just avoid the flood, let's just say. Avoid the flood, control the middle, stay compact, try to find some counter, exploit the matchups on the counter. 
Okay, well, I think that brings us pretty much the end of the the serious talking points into to the fun part of this show, which is the uh, the lineup predictions and score predictions. So, looking back, you you aimed for the one one draw again, and you came very close there. I was thinking for a while that you were gonna you were gonna nail the prediction against RSL, but the Whitecaps actually getting the better of you by scoring a late goal. So. Uh, we both kind of missed on that prediction, albeit you were you were closer than I was in that one. So, uh, well, I guess first your lineup, Alex, and then how you're feeling about this match against R- uh, not against RSL against LAFC. That would be nice if the Whitecaps were playing RSL again, but unfortunately, play you every week every they week. have to go against LAFC. So, uh, Mr. Evan Bush in goal, um, Mr. Uh, Eric Godoy at right center back, uh, Derek Cornelius at left center back. Ali Adnan at left back, right back Jake Norwinski, solid, good back line. Like Mark DeSanto said, st- is mostly stable. Good to see. You need some rotation. I think, unfortunately for Veselinovic, he's a, just based on his contract status and his mistake last game, he's an easy one to to drop out. And then I personally, again, I think a 4-3-1-2 might be in the cards. So Baldissimo Uwusubikau, finally, the number 10. Well, the number 10's tough. I think ultimately... You go Raposo, not Raposo. I'd love to see Raposo. You go Montero. Then you, you go Cavallini and Bear up top. The speed, you kind of do what you did against Toronto FC. You take advantage of the counter. And because I feel like Toronto FC is a good comparable to LAFC. They're really good in attack. And defensively, they're mostly solid. They're a lot more solid than LAFC. But they also, they have warts. And the Whitecaps exploited that in counter attack situations. And they played them. So I see that game plan working. Go for the 4-3-1-2. Bear, give Bear a redemption for not playing it last time against LAFC. Put him and Cavallini up top because they've been good together situations where it, it's allowed it and then play Montero underneath because Malinkovic just isn't fit and Montero's in great form. Interesting. Okay, so my back five, including Keeper, is exactly the same. you got Bush and Goal, Adnan, DC, Godoy, Nerwinski across the back line. I think that's a relative no-brainer. In midfield, same three. Bakel, Baldissimo, Owusu. I thought about Tybert in there just to spice things up, but your your ode on Owusu kind of you know brought me back. I'm I'm off the ledge on Owusu. I'm I'm back into the safety zone. So send him back out. And then for the front three, we're thinking very much the same, albeit slightly differently. Like I kind of envision this set up in a four three three, but. It'll probably at times play the way you're talking about, but I've got, I guess in that front three, got Raposo on the left because we saw a little bit of that with Ali late in the match and I liked what I saw against RSL. So Raposo on the left, Montero in the middle, Cavallini on the right. And I think, that, and I think that this can, because if you got Yakovic at right back or at right center back, I like that. I think Baldissimo playing long balls into Cavallini is kind of tempting on that right side. Then you got Owusu and Raposo who can do some interplay on the left. I also think that you have, you know, Raposo and Cavallini can almost drop back. You can play a 4-5-1 defensively if you're really trying to bunker in. You know, you can even drop Bakel between the center backs if you think you need that help. Like there's lots of flexibility defensively. And it's also a formation where I feel like if you 
if you really need to switch things up after 45, like a Wusu's just not doing it for you, you can bring Tybert in and you can, you know, change things up. And so I think bear off the bench, especially against, you know, some tired center backs, some tired defenders for LAFC. You know, if it's 1-1 in the 65th minute, a guy like Bear's great to bring on. So I, I like the different options you have there. So I think we're, we always do this because we kind of chat about what we're thinking before the show. So our ideas are always pretty similar, albeit with one or two little wrinkles in there. So that's what I'm thinking. And I guess with that, we'll go to Alex. You've had a little bit of time to think about it. So what's your, your match prediction for this one? Or, or any thoughts on my formation as well? Uh, I, I like it. I think uh, there's a, I mean, I'm, I'm very curious to see if Mark DeSantos choose if he does a four a three-man midfield and they win i'm gonna feel like such a genius if they do a three-man midfield and lose i'm just gonna disappear from the internet but i mean yeah i think i hopefully we see a three-man midfield and predictions boy it's tough but I, you know what i'm gonna think that portland water is doing them a world of good it's gonna be hard to say it's gonna be absolutely bonkers of a prediction two no white caps Wow. Oh my goodness. I thought you were going to say absolutely bonkers and it was going to be a draw. I was not expecting two nil white caps. Wow. That, okay. That caught me off guard. So it's predictions. You got to go for this. Yeah. That's uh that's guns a blazing for sure. So I'm going to say after we've seen, well, I've seen higher scoring matches, I guess. I don't know. It's been kind of a mixed bag. I'm going to steal your prediction from the last two matches and go one one draw. Wow. So I think that I think that the Whitecaps score inside the opening thirty and then LAFC works and works and works and is able to scrap one back, but because the Whitecaps score first, it keeps the match from being blown wide open, which is what the caps need. And I think honestly you walk out of that with LAFC with a point in hand, you're probably relatively happy. I mean, hey, I'll be thrilled if it's a 2-0 victory. I just, I don't know if I have the faith that if after scoring that first goal that they can go back and get another. I mean, it is, it does create, I mean, scoring the first goal could create an opportunity to expose LAFC defensively. I just don't know how the Whitecaps keep such a dynamic attacking team off the score sheet completely like i have a really hard time reconciling that very fair they haven't kept a clean sheet in like 12 games or something like that was 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 skc at mls's back the last time well i don't i don't count that because it's a knockout game it was chicago the game before Mm -hmm. anyways right so yeah i think it has to Keep clean eventually, right? Like you, you, something's got to give. I mean, what, what, what you'd, better you'd think way they than... have to draw eventually, which I hasn't mean, happened yet. So I mean, like without Ross, I mean, hey, maybe a nil-nil draw ticks off both of those boxes. But like, no Rossi, no Rodriguez. I mean, right looked the time, but maybe that maybe that's just what they need. I, I don't know. It, it's it's tough. I mean, yeah, I, I have no scientific reason to pick two nil. No, I'm just throwing it out there. And, Again, it's predictions. You either look like an idiot or look like a genius. So put, put your neck on the line and see what, see what you can do. <laughs> well, if nothing else, I, I love the confidence. So it, it should make the match interesting. Um, Alex, any, any final thoughts here before we sign off? 
Um, Twitter, you can find me there, Alex, Alex Gongeruzic at btsfancy.com. Have a good one, everyone, and I uh, hope, the, hope the match is going to let Sam sign us off. Yeah, uh, you can find me at Samuel underscore Rowboat on Twitter. As always, you can find us at Third Sub Pod as well, if that's something you're into. And uh, yeah, 86 Forever for all of our written work over at SB Nation. Uh, still got the report card out from the RSL if you want to check that out. We'll have some pre-match stuff. You know, same, same as always. And uh, thank you very much for listening. The views have been up substantially lately, which is great to see. I mean, we're not doing it for the views, so to speak, but to have people listening to the podcast and enjoying that's, that's always great. And so we, we appreciate your support, your feedback. Um, and yeah, we're looking forward to, you know, continuing to pump these out and, uh, the games are still coming thick and fast. So we're, we're going to enjoy it while it's here. And then we have lots of projects and ideas that we can dive into in the off season as well. So, you know, stick with us, stay tuned for more content and, uh, enjoy the match Wednesday night. So yeah, we'll talk to you again soon.